Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you on, uh, well, you're going to either listen to this on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. Either way, Happy New Year. Happy 2024. And I'm sure it's going to be a great year for us. I really am. I can feel it. I can feel it now. I think we're going to pick up quality assets at a discount party like it's 2012 liquidity will come back to the real estate markets all that kind of fun stuff i'm also eager to develop our own investor platform uh through investor club which by the way you should go sign up for at wealthformula.com if you're an accredited investor we're going to develop that investor platform into a powerhouse of diverse investments Real estate, obviously, your partnership, CEF, uh, with uh, Toro and Dante. Uh, but we're also going to be doing lots of other cool stuff. You know, real estate's always going to be our bread and butter. But we're going to be doing stuff with uh, Zolfielli, who's going to be who's going to be doing his uh, magic in terms of business on the business opportunity side, which, again, that's what I've been looking forward to. I've uh, been looking to get involved in some of these things uh, outside of real estate as well. And, uh, you know, just need to have the right guy leading the way. You know, these things are a lot harder to do due diligence on, but we're going to be doing things in the aviation sector. We're going to be doing stuff in uh, potentially in the business uh, mergers and acquisition space. It's going to be pretty cool. With the new year, though, it's probably also a time to look at yourself and ask yourself whether you may want to start a business of your own. As you know, I am a strong advocate for business ownership. In fact, uh, that's probably like, you know, my, my biggest identity is, is ultimately as a business owner. I have multiple businesses. And while doing a creative startup is not everyone's cup of tea, it certainly was my cup of tea, like starting businesses from scratch. It's not for everyone, but there's an increasing number of ways to get involved with business, uh, business ownership that may utilize the skills that you actually do have. Now, one of those options we've talked about before, it's franchising. And we've talked again, and we've talked about this on the show before, but I had to get this uh, guy on today who, who I recently met and he actually wrote the most popular book on franchising ever published. And one of the reasons is he didn't really try to sell me on franchising at all. He really didn't. And 
I kind of like that. I like I like it when tell I like it when people tell me about it. And the fact of the matter is, after that conversation I had with him, I kind of left it thinking, eh, it's probably not for me. And you know what? I realized that, you know, he's a franchising coach and it's probably why it seems like his his clients do as well as they do because he's basically telling people when it's not a good idea for them. But anyway, I had this interesting conversation with him, right? And and it kind of made me look at it from a few different perspectives that I had not thought about it before. Like for example, you know, you know, maybe franchising is uh, a way for that quote unquote good student, you know, who is, uh, who follows a curriculum really well in school. Maybe that's the right person for a franchise. Now I was, I was a, a good student, but I'm not your stereotypical business guy either. Right. I'm usually like, you know, I don't write between the lines, right? Like I'm like writing, <laughs> you know, writing, uh, making up my own lines as I go along. But Maybe franchising is the type of thing that's really good for somebody who's really good at following the rules and wants to follow the rules and get an A. Anyway, interesting, really interesting conversation. And I wanted to make sure you had an opportunity to listen to it because if you are thinking about, you know, doing a, um, you know, starting a business, haven't really, you know, thought of yourself as a business guy before, franchising is an option. And, this, uh, this particular podcast could be a really interesting um, way to, uh, you know, self-assess whether you want to, you know, look at this as, as something that could be really exciting for this new year. So when we come back, Rick Bezio. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Rick Bezio. Uh, Rick uh, is a uh, is focused on the business of franchising, and he has been for over a quarter of a century, utilizing a unique approach focused on improved decision making. Um, he's owned both franchised and non-franchised businesses. He's bought, sold, and invested businesses, and he's worked as an advisor for others seeking to do the same, especially in the franchise space. He's the number one author of all time in the franchise book space, the educated franchisee. And uh, he, so he knows his stuff and uh, we've had some great conversations and I'm excited to share his message with you. So Rick, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you so much, Buck. Great to be here. So, um, you know, we've talked about on on our show uh, of franchising a, a few different times uh, a couple different times, and um, you know, I'm 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 interested in getting your particular perspective on it because I think it's it's different and it's important. But before we do that, if you could just you know give us and uh, give us sort of the high level, you know, what is franchising, just to get everybody caught up on that concept. Well, actually, that's a really really good place to start because yeah. most people, if you ask what is a franchise. 
And I do this. I mean, I, you know, for a living, I ask, what is a franchise? And most people don't actually know. Right. They think, I see, you know, when you buy a franchise, what are you buying? And a lot of people say, well, a brand or a, you know, a, a successful whatever. And the reality is that franchising is basically a, a license is what it is. Okay. It actually, franchising is a subcategory of licensing law. And what you're really buying is a license to follow or to use the franchisor's business operating system. That's foundationally what a franchise is. So in the ideal world, franchising done right, right. okay, you'd have an individual who's gone out and built a system that is a successful business operating system. They would then create an, uh, an operational manual, a marketing manual that allows it to be replicated. Then ideally, the franchisor would actually replicate it a couple of times to make sure that when replicated, it works as well as it did in its original form. Right. Once they have that proven, then at that point, they would begin offering franchises, potentially, if they wanted to become a franchisor. And at that point, when they bring people in, they would have the systems in place and the track record to be able to predictably replicate that business model a- across you know, various locations. But at the end of the day, it is a license. It's you don't. Um, uh, it's not something where you actually own the brand name. You own the right to use the system. Right, right. Although certainly one of the the benefits of this, is, especially in higher profile franchises, would be the ability to leverage the brand. Maybe you don't own it, but being able to say that you are. Um, Let's just say, and you know, I don't even know if McDonald's franchising anymore or whatever. But let's say McDonald's. Obviously, uh, you, if you have a McDonald's and uh, you happen to be a franchise, a McDonald's franchise, that ability to leverage the, you know, the big golden arches and all that stuff, it sort of creates a significant brand recognition, which is very difficult uh, to to achieve in businesses. It is, but I'm. I come at this a little differently than a lot of people. And I know there's probably going to be some marketing people watching this completely disagree with me. Okay. Yeah. But when you look at like McDonald's, for example, yeah. and I haven't looked at their FED for a while, but my belief is that they probably have around three to three and a half percent of gross sales that must be spent on marketing. Yeah. So just because it's a brand doesn't mean you don't have to market. First of all. Right. The second thing is when you buy a franchise, McDonald's excluded because of their size. But in most scenarios, 95% of the time, when you buy a franchise, you buy exclusive territoriality along with that. So you're buying the rights to open five, you know, whatever franchises in a marketplace. Well, once you've developed your five in that marketplace and developed brand recognition in that marketplace, how excited would you be about other people coming in and saying, oh my gosh, he built that brand recognition. I'm going to piggyback on him. Right not too good right right so generally speaking like if you like look five guys burger and fries that thing sold out florida florida was completely sold out before the first location opened in florida before most people had ever heard of it in florida yeah and so one person owned all of the tampa metropolitan area and so a lot of times when you buy a franchise you're buying a franchise in a market where the brand is not yet developed and it's your job to use the system to develop brand name recognition, to develop a track record, to develop customer base. It's not, um, if somebody else does that work, generally they have exclusivity mm-hmm. over the work that they've created. So right. you, it's hard to just say, oh, I want to, I want uh, Dunkin' Donuts is a famous one. Everyone always calls, I want Dunkin' Donuts. So it's like, 
they've been sold out for like 30, 40 years in many markets. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's not likely you're going to get one. Yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting. Okay. So we talked about uh, getting the license and, and, you know, in our conversations before, uh, I like the idea of thinking of that, um, you know, is essentially what you're doing is you're getting a curriculum that you follow, right? You, yeah. you basically have that. And we'll come to that, back to that concept in a second as it relates to this audience. But let's talk about the uh, statistics because, um, you know, I'm a startup guy and I have not. Uh, I've not ever gotten into the franchising space myself. Um, I've had uh, success. I've had failures. Luckily, the success has been big enough to uh, bail me out of the failures. But but um, the 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 uh, percentage of of startups that fail is at seventy percent, I guess, in five years. Is there statistics on the franchise side for failures, or is that just a, a difficult one to quantify for? the amount of variables that might be present in that space. With a, with a franchise that's been around a while, they must disclose that information for you. It's in the disclosure document. It's in item 22. It's in table three. Now, if they've only been around one or two years, there's really no track record to measure. But if you have a franchise that's been around a decade, two decades, what have you, you can actually build a historical track record of success, failure, closure rates uh, by going in through historical FDDs and building an extended table. I do that sometimes for fun because I'm kind of an FDD nerd. But um, you really can actually determine what the success and failure rate of a franchise is when it's had enough time to right. hit some level of maturity. I would warn you around those 70% failure rate numbers. Um, when I was writing my book, I spent a lot of time trying to find those numbers. And I talked to a lot of people. They were on people's websites. And I'd call them up. I'd say, where did you get that data? Well, I got it from this other website. So I'd call that website. They didn't have it either. There's really never been a study on success of, of business ownership. And, and one of the primary reasons why is because nobody can define success. Yeah. So the problem we have, and this is kind of a rabbit hole I'm going to try not to get too deep into, yeah. okay, because I... But what happens is when you look at these success rates, the only studies that have ever really been done is opening and closing rates of, um, of incorporations. Somebody incorporates and then they close the corporation. Opening is, a, is a opening, closure is a failure, basically. That's how that defines. In some cases, they do it based on people who pay taxes on employees. The employee, those are the only two ways that those things can actually be done. So if you own a business and you run the business, let's say you decide you're going to open a business, you set up a corporation, three months later, you change your mind, you never open it, you close the corporation. What is that? It's a failure, right? Yeah. What if you run it for a year, you lose all your money and you close it? That's a failure. What if you run it for 10 years, it's worth millions of dollars and you sell it to somebody, what are you going to do with the corporation? Close it. Nobody buys the corporation. It's always an asset purchase. So corporation, there is actually no path to success right. based on that, that study methodology. Um, so I, I'm very, I, I think that the lot of, it's very hard. I haven't even figured out how you actually measure success because people measure it in different ways. But in the world of franchising, on a, on a franchise or by franchise or basis, if there's enough maturity, you absolutely can find that number specifically for a franchise. Table three, item 22. Yeah. Startups would be tricky too, because I mean, especially these days, I mean, you have like 
internet startups and completely online things, it's like, wait, how do you even measure that? But, but instinctually it would seem that, that, uh, franchisees probably have a higher likelihood of survival, uh, you know, all things the same simply because there's at least, uh, you know, some, some, some level of success, uh, that that's been defined, uh, through these, uh, documents. One of the things that, uh, again, you and I talked about offline, um, before was that, you know, and, and maybe I, I don't know if I brought this up, but you know, one of my, um, one of my, uh, inspirations early on was Robert Kiyosaki, uh, who I've, I've had on the show a few times and, and Robert and I have this, uh, you know, his famous thing where he says, you know, the A students work for C students and B students work for the government. And I totally uh, get that. And, you know, and I was joking around about this with, I think, Tom Wheelwright and, and Robert at some point that the reason for that was that the, the um, you know, those C students, they never really had that much to to lose in the first place, right? Like in, in terms of many offers that that's right. And, 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 and in school, it's like, they weren't getting this constant Pavlovian positive feedback, uh, because they were the A students getting patted on the back. So going away from the quote unquote curriculum was not as much of a challenge or it was not as big a deal for them as for people who have had tremendous success within the system who were constantly. Those are societal expectations. Exactly. Those A students are expected to do, the C students can do whatever they want. Nobody cares. Exactly. And the next More thing free. you know, those C students, um, and I can speak from experience in this space in Montecito where I live, where it seems like everybody's a business owner. I'm probably the only one with a significant academic pedigree that I know. And I'm, I mean, I'm by no means even close to the most successful of them, but, um, I, you know, I'm the only A student amongst them. Uh, now I, I bring this all up because in, in, in the framework that I've just laid out, there's one major element that franchises could potentially solve for in the A student world, which is that there is a curriculum involved. In other words, In theory, this should be the place where people who are good at following the books and doing what they're told and dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's and taking the test successfully should succeed. Am I wrong? Assuming it's a good franchise? Yes, it has to be a good franchise. I mean, just because it's a franchise doesn't mean it works. No, I know that's not the question I'm asking. I guess the question I'm asking is the personality type. The personality type is what I'm getting at here okay, is that yeah. I would argue that again, most of my, most of my physician colleagues in particular, I, those are the people I, you know, I went to school with, obviously I would say that most of them are really probably not the classic entrepreneur um, yeah, types like, like me. Yeah. yeah. Like me, yeah. like me, or was a little renegade type, right? Little bootstrap. <laughs> make it, I might be the crazy one a little bit. Right. But yeah. this is a different kind of entrepreneurship, and there's sort of a distinction between those types of people. And I think you, yeah. you talked about that a little bit. You want to tell yeah. tell me tell us a little bit about so, that? I've had people ask, and I think you actually started off say, if you own a franchise, are you actually a business owner? And um, it's the reality is there's different kinds of business owners out there in this world, and and I've broken it down into what I call a creative business owner or an executive business owner. 
a creative entrepreneur or an executive entrepreneur. The creative entrepreneur is the individual who really has to do it their own way. Um, we talked about it. We yeah. that you might be in that camp, yeah. but my father was in that camp as well. I mean, my father didn't finish eighth grade. He came to the United States, hardly speaking any English. And he started his own business, put his name above the door and didn't let him tell. Nobody told him anything during his life. He, yeah. And he would have been a horrible franchisee because the system that they developed is not something he'd be willing to follow. He would look at it. He'd say, hey, that's nice. I'll take that piece. Maybe I'll take that piece and then I'll do it my own way. Yeah. And so he wouldn't really get the value out of the system. And the franchisor would be very frustrated with my father because he wouldn't be following the system. So the customers would be getting various different levels of service and done, done in different ways. There'd be no consistency across the system. So those who are creative entrepreneurs, like my father, possibly like yourself, like a lot of folks out there, um, especially those people who, who never worked in corporate America and never followed a system, right? Yep. From day one, they were doing their own thing. These people probably shouldn't be franchisees. And um, when I work with people individually and I sense that, we'll have this conversation. The alternative is what I call an executive entrepreneur. And that's the individual who really cares mostly about getting from point A to point B as predictably and reliably as possible. They know it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be an easy path, but at least we know what the path is. We know what needs to be done. And we are more concerned with getting from point A to point B than we are about who invented it or whose name is above the door. That's right. more me. So yeah. my father and I were always very different. He has passed away now, but we, we used to have conversations on that. And he was like, ah, why do you do that? Just do it yourself. You can do it better. That's typical creative entrepreneur. Yeah. For me, I look at, I've been a franchisee multiple times now, and I've been a creative entrepreneur myself. My first business was a bootstrap startup. And I bloodied my nose a lot of times yeah. on the creative side. And I really prefer not to. I prefer to find something that's good, follow it, make it happen. Yeah. Interesting. But yeah, you get, you get what I'm getting at though. So now there is a curriculum and that's why yeah. like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uh, uh, beating that uh, to me. That was sort of an aha moment when yeah. it's like, well, you know, maybe this is, this is a way, you know, I've, I, I've talked about this di distinction between um, entrepreneurs and non-entrepreneurs, but this seems like one of those, maybe I've, I've, I've made that definition of entrepreneur too narrow and this is a, this is a way for the people who are executioner types or operators or good students to to actually do uh, do something that's uh, liberating. Uh, along that lines, let me ask you this though: is that is it possible for someone who is got a full time job and is a busy physician? Uh, busy lawyer, business owner uh, of their own type to, to, to do, to, to take on franchising and to grow franchises and, you know, territories and all of that. Or is this in itself, in your view, is this a, another full-time job? It's not a full-time job if you don't need it to be. Um, but it is a job. So if you say, I want to get into a franchise and I'm just going to, like a, like one of the, you know, passive investment, real estate investments and put some money in and see if it works. Right. Really to date, that's not possible. There are, there, believe it or not, there's actually three or four franchises right now that are experimenting with that where you give them the money and they run the whole thing on your behalf. It's very interesting. And if, 
if they're able to execute, really make that happen, it'll open up a whole world that doesn't exist right now. But generally speaking, I work with a lot of people that have full-time jobs and own franchises at the same time. But you have to have freedom and flexibility. All right. So if your employee calls you up, your manager calls you up and says, hey, I need help with this. Somebody's going to be able to answer the phone, right? You've got to be able to be available. So, um, you know, one of the things I have found, like with, with, let's say with doctors sometimes, right? Let's say you're a surgeon and you're in, in, in the operating suite all day long, right? Yeah. And you start at six in the morning and you're not done till four o'clock in the evening. It, it, it can be difficult because you actually don't have freedom and flexibility. If there's a piece of real estate you got to look at because you're thinking about putting a lease, that's where you want to do it. You want to look at it, see maybe at least where your attorney wants to call you up and say, what do you want to do with those terms of the lease? You're, you're unable to respond. You're unable to, to do that. So um, if this, this small world that I'm telling you about, if it continues to expand, it'll be very, very interesting and it will be a pure answer for these kind of, for this. But really, I think that you do need to have some freedom and flexibility to be able to answer the phone, especially in the first six months as you're getting your, the feet of the business set and you're hiring the people, you got to make sure they know what they're doing and you got to make sure they're doing the right thing and make sure no one's stealing from you, right? Be able to check the books and make sure that, you know, the inventory that came in one side reconciles with the income on came in on the other side or, or just service the number of hours billed equals the number of dollars came in. Right. So it's just a, um, you do have to pay attention, I guess is what I'm saying, but I've worked with people who have uh, wall street investment firms, that own many franchises now. I have folks that are senior vice presidents at Microsoft Corporation um, that own multiple locations, but they had personal flexibility. That was the key. When you look at this, and one of the things that you were saying is with creative entrepreneurs, this may not be a good fit. And I do, I do like, by the way, the fact that you, you do, you do come at this with a critical eye. I think that there's a danger in this space, uh, particularly with coaches um, that try to fit the, uh, you know, round peg in, into the square hole, because there is, there is something about that that I think is really important. You have to be a good fit. Just considering some of the other angles on this though, say you are, say you are a creative entrepreneur. Is there an approach to this that you've seen creative entrepreneurs basically be able to turn on a switch and say, okay, but this is part of my investment portfolio and I run this the way I would run, you know, some of my real estate projects or, you know, um, the things that I, I don't, I'm not necessarily doing on a day-to-day basis, but I treat them sort of like investments in real estate or things like that, that I'm not just a syndicator per se, but say I own the real estate and I have to do some things. Is there... Is there a role in that regard for that kind of approach to, to franchising for an individual? Absolutely. Yeah, it can absolutely be done. But it's not so much can it be done. It's more as can the person do it. Mm-hmm. That's really the biggest challenge. And I've worked with a lot of people that have owned built multiple businesses on their own, bootstrap startups. Yeah. And during my first conversation, I'm going to have that call. I say, listen. Are you willing to follow somebody else's system? Because you've always done it your own way. What happens if somebody calls you and says, this is the way it needs to be done? How will you feel about that? And sometimes people are like, yeah, I'd have a problem with that. And I say, great. It's good to know that early. 
But in other cases, they will say to me, you know, Rick, I've actually built my own business multiple times, and I know how much time and effort and money it takes to make all those mistakes. I'm not interested in doing that again. I know that, and I want to do it differently this time. And so I've worked with a number of people who are creative entrepreneurs and no longer want to go down that crazy learning curve. They want to do it in a way that they don't have to make all those mistakes. Um, And they know that they're going to give up some freedom in order to have that risk reduction. So let's talk about scalability, because one of the things that I've always made it a point, um, I shouldn't say always, but like, I mean, within my since in my entrepreneurial life, some of the mistakes that I've made and the ones that I won't make again, because I, I don't want to, is that uh, I won't get involved with anything that I can't scale without without minimal time uh, uh, linearity to that. In other words, you know, if I own one thing or I do something, I don't want... If I, if, if I get 10 times as big and make 10 times as money, I don't want that to take 10 times the amount of time. So in franchising, I would think that scalability would be sort of built in into the manual. Is that, is that fair? Absolutely. It's very, very much the fact. As a matter of fact, the hardest one you will ever run is your first one. Right. By the time you get to three, your workload will go down. By the time you get to 10, you'll be working half time on it. Um, And the reason is because when you only have one location, somebody leaves, it's like, oh my gosh, I get somebody to replace them. I mean, it's, it's a it's a big problem, right? But when you have three and one person leaves, you get somebody from the other place to come over and cover for you. And then when you have five, you have a manager running all that on your behalf. Um, I, I have a friend of mine who I used to go play golf with down in Myrtle Beach, and he started off with a single haircutting salon back in like 1980 or something it was. And uh, he ended up with, I think, 45 of them. And uh, you have never met a more relaxed guy playing golf. He never took a phone call. He was not on his phone. He wasn't on his computer. And I asked him one time, I said, how do you do that with all those locations? He's like, Rick, he says, I got staff. They're very capable. They do everything. He says, I show up, I buy cookies. And so that's a really good point because and all like for me personally, I hate being a manager. I'm not a good manager. I've always had somebody in that role to be the, the, the manager of people to me, to me, like brick and mortar businesses and stuff, the hardest, the hardest part about them, the biggest variable is people, right? Every business. Right. So if you're not, if you're not a manager type, are you not a good franchise person? Good fit for franchises? You have to be, you have to be willing to, to lead. Right. Well, leading is different from managing though. That is a little different. In my experience, I, I lead a lot, right? I lead the direction of everything I do, but I don't manage people that much. So it's a financial question at the right. end of the day. Right. It really is. Okay. So you open up this storefront business, right? And you can hire an individual, what we call a working employee, a, a leading employee. So you have a right. key employee that's going to manage as well. They're getting paid a little bit of money, right? You've got to lead that person. You've got to manage that person. You've got to pay attention to that person. But by doing it that way, you can get to break even relatively quickly, yeah. right? Yeah. On the other hand, you can go hire somebody at $100,000 a year who's highly qualified to do it, has every skill you have, and maybe even some more. But your break even is not going to probably be to your second or third location because you have to overcome that that thing. So it's a matter of how much money are you willing to put in right. to, over, to, to basically make up for your lack of willingness or lack of ability. 
Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Let's talk about which ways you can go with franchising, right? I mean, what are, what are some of the, what are, what are some of sort of the categories that you break them down with? I mean, so obviously you do coaching and let's say, um, and, and maybe we'll do this. I've done, I've gone through this process before, but I think your approach, you know, might be, uh, uh, something that might be more appealing for me, but say I come to you and say, Hey Rick, you know, thinking about this franchising concept. And so when you start talking about, when you start thinking about the different possibilities for an individual, what are you, what are you, what are you thinking about? Like, what are the broad categories that you start to like, you know, match people up with and narrow things down? Well, first of all, I don't start with the franchises. I start with the person. Right. All right. So before we get to even thinking about any franchises, and this is something I've been very, um, regimented about i try never to look at what is the you know try to jump ahead of the process because you do that you start steering yeah i don't ever want to steer so we start out with a questionnaire who are you what are your background what are you actually good at what are your skill sets what are your lifestyle objectives what are your financial criteria we pull all that together and then we go through about an hour and a half interview to really dive in to get real specifics on what do you want here and, and when it's all put together, I write everything down into a written document that has all the criteria of what the perfect business might look like for you, all right? Now, whether that perfect business exists or not is kind of irrelevant. Right. Most importantly, we're creating a target, and we want to get as close as we can to that target. Once we've done that, then the goal then is to begin looking at franchises and saying, how can we creatively resolve this particular Rubik's Cube? And we're looking at it usually from three completely different angles. Mm -hmm. If you get, let's say you have a, a, a definition of what you want and there's three identical franchisors and we look at those all against each other, it's one dimensional, right? right? But if we can look at it, sometimes there's ways to resolve a Rubik's cube that afterwards you start looking at it you're like, wow, we could actually do it that way. I never thought about that. So the idea then is to get multiple franchises that provide different methodologies for potentially solving that, that need, that desire, that want, right? And then I bring those to you and then you begin doing your due diligence and the due diligence process is going to take time. Um, it's going to take probably six to eight weeks, assuming you can put an hour a day into the process. And every week we talk, we talk and every week I teach you about how to actually use an FDD, how to target franchisees for interviews, um, how to extract financial information from franchisee interviews. Um, there's just a whole bunch of tools and techniques that I want to teach you so that you can do your due diligence. And when you get to the end of the process, you have enough knowledge to know if it's right or not. And that you're an educated franchisee. That's why I call this to look at. Right, right. Okay, so so let's say, though, like, okay, you go down that process. You know, people, people may not have a good sense of, like, what can be a franchise, right? Absolutely. I mean, and so I'm just kind of curious – like what is the range of businesses out there? Like what, what are, what are some of the things that your clients are looking at or your, you know, your coaching students are, are looking at right now um, the range of things that are out there just so people can kind of. It think. is so wide. It's hard yeah. to even, you know, throw. I mean, yeah. it's anything from hotels to business coaching. Uh -huh. It's anywhere from bio cleanup to, to eyelash enhancements. I mean, it's um, you know, it's, it's anywhere from, uh, you know, disaster, uh, you know, remediation to, to, uh, rehabbing houses, getting ready for resales. 
Um, I mean, every real estate company out there is a franchise. Every hotel is a franchise. Well, not every, but most of them are all franchises. They're, um, franchising covers probably 100 different industries. And that is one of the biggest challenges I have. Because if I say to anybody, name a franchise, they're immediately going to name a restaurant. Yeah. And, um, and usually a quick service restaurant. And that's one out of 100 different industries. Uh, How do you, how do you as a, as a coach, um, you know, what are some of the principles that you're looking at for good, good franchises for, for your clients? And, and, you know, what are the, some of the sort of red flags that you would say, nah, you probably want to stay away from that one because of this. Well, there's a lot of reasons to stay away from franchises and, and, you know, some of them are because of what the individual wants. Right. So let's say the individual says, I want to keep my job. Well, then 75% of the franchise is already out the window. Because right. they require full-time commitment, right? Sure. So a lot of times as we go through the process, it's very easy to say, okay, here's the financial box. Here's the skill set box. Here's the time. And we very quickly are able to narrow it down. But from the franchisor side, sure, there's some franchise systems that I look at. I'm like, yeah. you know, they, they, they have a great story. There's some franchise systems that have a wonderful franchise sales department. I mean, they're really good at selling franchises. Yeah. But when you look at their numbers in their FDD, uh, they're not that impressive. I mean, they have three three year success rates of fifty percent. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's. I mean, yeah. Only fifty percent of your franchisees survive three years. Are you kidding? Yeah. You know, but they have good sales departments, so they manage to bring people in as fast as they lose them. Right. right. There's other franchise systems out there that bring very few franchisees in, but they also um, lose very few franchisees. Um, in some cases, there's franchise systems that literally have no track record. But they're really interesting because the guy that founded them founded the exact same business previously, built a very successful franchise, and is using the same back, backbone system to run the new franchise. So you're looking at it and say, well, guy, it's the same system, the same guy, but he's doing it again better this time. Right. Even though he doesn't have any franchisees, maybe that's something worth considering. It's higher risk, but it's something real. Um, so, you know, there's, it's hard. It is. And then after a number of years, <laughs> decades, yeah, you start to kind of get a sense of who's who out in the world of franchising. And, you know, the question I always ask is, you know, would I feel comfortable, you know, putting a family member in there? Yeah. And if the answer is no, then I'm not introducing it to anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, it also helps to have a long, uh, you know, you've been doing this for a long time, right? And I think, yeah. uh, and I and I do appreciate the candor because I think there's always, um, you know, one thing that I, I, I do get worried about in this space is that people, you know, obviously that from the, everybody wins and it's, if there's a successful match, but, you know, if, if it's not a successful match and, and all that, it's mostly the person who's trying to, trying to get that, um, business up and going is the one who loses. And those are the, those are uh, the people listening to this show. So I do appreciate the candor. Um, how do we, uh, so, so tell us a little bit about your book if you would, and then, and then maybe like uh, how we can get, and you know, people can get a hold of you if, if, if they're interested in talking. Yeah. Um, my book is called the educated franchisee. I don't think we talked about this at the beginning, but I spent most of the 1990s doing international franchise development for Popeye's, Chicken and Biscuits, Church's Chicken, Seattle's Best Coffee, and Cinnabon. I put them in about 30 countries back in the 1990s. And then from 2000 to 2002, I worked for a small franchise system um, that I thought I could fix. 
And I was wrong. And what I learned was that there's a real difference between good franchise systems and good franchise systems that are not so great. And that's how I got into franchise coaching. And then I started working with these people. They're like, he said, you've got to, have you ever written this stuff down? I was like, no, I haven't written anything down like that. And they're like, well, you need to. And one guy said to me that, I said, I don't like to write that much. His name was Mike Culver. And he says, I love to write. He says, I used to be an English teacher. He says, why don't you just record it and I'll write it. He says, yeah. because it's been so invaluable to me, I would love to be on this project with you. And so Mike and I, between over the course of three years, wrote the book. I would record everything, and then he'd write it, and I'd hate what he wrote. And we created a book that's now in its third edition, which is actually right here, that has really been, well, it's we sold over 10,000 copies of the book. It's been a, a best-selling book in the world of franchising for years. And it is completely dedicated to individuals who want to explore franchising as a franchisee. If you want to build your own franchise, if you want to become a franchisor, it's not the book for you. It's a book that's designed to help you think through, should I be a franchisee? If so, how do you analyze a franchise? And that's where this book originally, uh, the nexus of the book, you might say, it's now in its third edition. And um, like I say, has uh, continues to sell very well. And, and the wonderful thing about it is I get, I literally get emails from people in other parts of the world that say, I read your book and it changed my life. Yeah. That makes you feel good. Makes yeah. you feel really good. But anyhow, if they want to get hold of me, I'm really easy. The name's Rick Bizio. <laughs> yeah. Right there. Yeah. And um, if you you can go to educatedfranchisee.com, you can Google Rick Bizio franchise. Uh, my website is a coaching website is afranchisecoach.com. Um, or just send me an email at um, rbizio. That's r b i s i o at educatedfranchisee.com. And um, I'm like I say, I'm probably one of the easiest pe- people in the world to find. <laughs> Great. Um, but one thing I promise, if anybody does reach out and buck, I mean, these are special people to you. These are family yeah. members to you. I will treat them the same way. I will be completely honest. If it's not right for them, I will tell them that. But more importantly, I'll make sure they are 100% educated prior to making a decision. Yeah, I appreciate that. Rick Bizio, uh, everyone, uh, thanks so much for being on the show. I'd love to have you on again. And, and uh, you know, if I end up going through this, uh, maybe we'll, <laughs> we'll come back and we talk about it. We could have some fun. We'll have some fun with it. Then we <laughs> can report right. back to the group. We'll be right back. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Let me know if you're going to do this. I think it's pretty cool. I think it's it's interesting. I think franchising is very interesting. Again, I have not done it. I think Rick has uh, convinced me to at least go through this uh, process again. You know, I have, uh, I have a lot of criteria when I think about, you know, business in general. If I did this, I wouldn't want it to be something that, a lot of time. I wouldn't want it to be something that was in, involving like a lot of um, employees because I don't like dealing with a lot of employees. Uh, I wouldn't want something boring. So not 
not something like cosmetic or something like that, you know, because I, I want, I need something that would be, you know, something that people would want, even, or, or something people need, even, uh, even if they don't, uh, even if, even if times are rough. So anyway, those are some of my criteria. If I think about doing something like this, that's purely more, more of an investment type uh, business. But I would love to hear how your experience goes. If you go down this road, let's compare notes. Shoot me an email, bucketwealthformula.com. But that's all I have this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. Happy New Year. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.